Well, good evening. Um, as always, it is an honor uh, to be gathered together before the Lord and open His Word together. Uh, full disclosure, uh, Rachel typically acts as my proofreader, uh, and so she reads through and clears up any confusion there might be. Uh, and when she finished this one, she said... It's not your best. So, so I just want to let you know up front, this isn't apparently my best work. Uh, so you're going to need to hang in there with me um, a little bit more normally than you might. Um, but nevertheless, uh, even though uh, the messenger is frail, uh, we still have the great privilege and the great opportunity to open God's word together, to study it, um, and to allow it to study us. Because of the uh, faithfulness of men and women, generation after generation, uh, to texts like our text today, uh, we have the opportunity to be sitting here all together um, on the back of a worship order, um, on our phones, uh, in multiple different variations uh, of the Bible to open it and to read it in English. Uh, something that we so often take for granted um, is in fact a great privilege that has come at a great price uh, for many people. So I pray uh, that you don't take that for granted. Um, it is a great privilege, and that great privilege and our many comforts that we enjoy um, in our time have not been enjoyed by our brothers and sisters in the past. And interestingly enough, uh, the fact that we have those comforts and we have those privileges uh, sometimes are the very things that keep us from enjoying uh, the presence of God. Um, and so I pray this morning as we open our text, uh, you will try your best uh, to remove your privileges, to remove your comforts, and allow God's Word uh, to penetrate into your heart and into your mind and into your soul, and that it would bring you into a deeper communion with Him um, and with one another and a deeper faithfulness. Um, in your pursuit of Jesus. So uh, if you're willing and in your, if you're able, please stand. Um, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you do not have your Bibles or an iPad or a Bible uh, or a, um, an iPhone or whatever, um, the, uh, the scripture text is on the back of your worship order. And we'll be reading uh, verses 25 through 35. Hear God's word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, 
But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of His Word, and may He grant us all the grace to trust and obey it. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Now, it's been two weeks since we've been in Luke uh, 14, so let's uh, just real quickly refresh our memories. In the earlier section of Luke chapter 14, we saw Jesus confronting that good old boy system. Jesus showed the lawyers and the Pharisees what it really looked like to keep Sabbath by being with God's people on God's day and participating in acts of mercy. And then he told a parable to the people at the dinner to teach them that they must not strive for power but for weakness if they truly wanted to reign. They had to give up their positions of perceived honor if they wanted to receive true honor. And then Jesus turned to the man at the dinner table, the man who had invited him, and he publicly rebuked him in front of everyone. He said that he shouldn't be catering to the people that had something to offer him in return, but he should be caring for the people who can't even take care of themselves. In an awkward situation, a man stands up and he throws out a religious platitude and Jesus opposes him right there on the spot by telling another parable. He tells them that they're not supposed to allow good things to be ultimate things and keep them from his meal. To use the master's words and the master's gifts as excuses to avoid the master was in fact inexcusable. Jesus' great feast was beginning. And if they didn't come to him, then they wouldn't partake of the even greater feast that was to come in the future. If you remember, he took those religious good old boys to task. Because they had ignored his invitation to follow him, he was now inviting the outcasts and the poor and the blind and the lame. And that's where we come to in our text today. We see the message that Jesus has been preaching against these men resonated, not with just a few people, but your text says with great crowds. You could almost hear the lower and the middle class coming out in droves, wanting to make Jerusalem great again. But Jesus would have nothing of it. This isn't an election. And he isn't asking to be their team captain, and he isn't asking them to let him take the wheel. G.B. Caird says that Jesus is not calling for spectators, he is calling for recruits. And he uses three illustrations to drive this point home. First, you must hate your parents and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters and even your own life if you want to be Jesus' disciple. Second, you must be willing to bear shame and death if you want to be Jesus' disciple. And third, you better count the cost up front so that you're prepared for the difficult road that is ahead. If you see there in verse 26, Jesus comes out swinging. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is totally not what you would expect from Jesus. On Sunday mornings, uh, as a family, we try to read the sermon text and to discuss um, what might be coming. And so I read this this morning and I asked the kids, what did Jesus say to the crowd? And Bailey spoke up and said, he said that you have to love your family if you're going to be his disciple. Now, it could be that she was spazzing out because she had had half a bottle of syrup. Or it could be that she was simply responding, thinking what she would expect Jesus to say. If you're not listening carefully, and if you've been raised in a family with traditional Christian values, it's totally understandable why she would say that. But Jesus doesn't say, you must love your family. He says, you must hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your sisters and your brothers and even your own life if you want to be my disciple. Imagine the shock of that statement. Now we have to be clear about what that statement does not mean if we want to be clear about, it, about what it does mean. Jesus is not saying that you have to literally hate your family. He has already spoken about the two greatest commandments and the summary of the Ten Commandments was that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength and you would love your neighbor as yourself. He's already rebuked the Pharisees for breaking the fifth commandment and not taking care of their fathers and their mothers. So there's nothing in this command here that would go against what Jesus commands elsewhere. He never contradicts himself. So if these words aren't to be taken literalistically, what is he saying when he tells the crowd that anyone who wants to follow him must hate these people? Well, Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom. And he's using it to tell the crowds that their love for him needs to be infinitely greater in relation to their love for anyone else. Now the temptation will be for you to hear that and for you to take a big sigh of relief. Jesus is just saying I have to love them more than him. But brothers and sisters, that's not what he's saying either. We cannot fall into the same trap as those religious good old boys and use God's word to get out of obeying God himself. Don't gloss over the extremity of what he's saying. Your love for him must make your love for everything and everyone else look like hate in comparison. In fact... If you don't love Jesus this much, he says that you're not really able to love your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters and your children. Mark and I were talking to a pastor in Fort Worth a couple months ago. And he said that a family in their church uh, brought their children forward for baptism because they believed that these kids belonged to the Lord. Doing this so infuriated the Reformed Baptist grandparents, that they wrote the parents out of their will. Now, when I first 
heard that, I was kind of blown away at that dedication uh, for something like that. But then I thought about it. For most people, in most times, in most places, the action of these parents wouldn't sound so extreme. But for us, in our time and in our place, to profess you follow Jesus doesn't cost anyone anything, let alone the ire of their family. So I want to ask you right now, would anyone look at your life and your prioritization of them and the Lord and say, don't you love me? Would anyone that you know, anyone that you love, anyone that you care about begin to wonder if you love them because you love the Lord so much and you are so obedient to the Lord's commands? Now, I want to say, when we do talk about Jesus, when we are talking about loving Jesus, what we are not talking about is some ooey-gooey feeling that Jesus makes you have. It's not some emotional reaction whenever somebody tells you about Jesus. Jesus says, if you love Him, you will keep His commandments. Your love for Him will come out in your actions in extreme and costly ways. And if your love for Him doesn't lead you to follow Him in obedience, when it seems impossible, Jesus says that you are unable to be His disciple. Now, an interesting fact about this word unable is it's the same word that Jesus uses when He's speaking with Nicodemus. Jesus told Nicodemus that unless someone was born from above, they were unable to enter the kingdom of God. And all the Calvinists love to raise their fists and say, See, Jesus was a Calvinist. And then you get to this text, and Jesus says, If anyone does not hate your family, your wife, your husband, your children, your mother and father, your brothers and sisters, even your own life, you are unable to be my disciple. And even the best theologian pulls his hand down and looks shiftily from side to side, hoping that no one saw him. It's so easy to make great theological affirmations. It is so easy to make public professions of faith, but it is so hard to actually follow Jesus with our lives. And that brings us to our second point that Jesus uses to warn the crowds. You must be willing to endure shame and even death if you want to follow Jesus. Now we say this all the time, but Jesus is not throwing out a Bible Belt platitude by saying that you each need to bear your own cross necklace, or if you're really serious, get a cross tattoo. We throw these things around, we hang crosses around our necks, and we decorate them in our houses with neat little arrangements, but people in Jesus' time would have never thought to do this. Most of them would have seen a public execution by crucifixion. And that sight would have been so horrific that some people even refused to speak the word crucifixion in civil conversation. 
Now, this is hard for us to imagine because we've heard it so many times and we're so far removed from public shame and torture. But a public crucifixion removed any and all dignity from the sufferer. And it was intended to spread fear and guilt and shame to everyone who saw it. The closest thing we could probably get in our lives to experiencing something like this would have been the lynchings of the African Americans around the turn of the 20th century. Imagine the shame. Imagine the embarrassment you would feel if you walked to Sunnyvale Park or you walked to Forney Park and you saw someone hanging from an oak tree, blind, naked, bleeding, barely able to breathe, hanging from a tree because of what they believed. Hanging from a tree because people were trying to suppress them. Imagine the shame you would feel. James Cone in the preface to the book, The Lynching of Willie Earle, says that the crucifixion was clearly a first century lynching. In the lynching era between 1880 and 1940, white professing Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the crucifixion of Jesus. The cross and the lynching tree were symbols meant to convey terror to all who witnessed them. So when you hear Jesus saying, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, and you imagine Jesus to be saying, whoever isn't willing to suffer by waking up early and reading their Bibles, or whoever isn't willing to forsake nap time and come to Sunday school, or whoever isn't willing to sit at the uncool table at lunch isn't worthy to be my disciple. You are missing the point. Those things are the bare minimum. They are so minimal. They are outside the realm of comprehension when speaking of bearing your own cross. Perhaps if you were to replace it with whoever isn't willing to be lynched and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus isn't trying to be mean for mean's sake. Jesus isn't trying to be provocative for provocative sake. These statements are meant to convey the seriousness of commitment that somebody must have when professing to be a Christ follower. And Jesus is trying to be honest with people up front. I would be a terrible friend if I were to invite you out to a really fancy restaurant and eat all the courses and whenever the bill comes says, Hey, you got this? Jared invited me to come for a nice little swim at the YMCA a few years ago. And then he proceeded to try to make me swim a mile. I was not ready. I almost drowned. He hadn't told me I needed to be prepared to die. So I may never go swimming with Jared again. I'm still afraid when I see a pool. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing people for the difficulty they're about to encounter. 
In the West, we tell people that, well, Jesus will help you be moral and he will give you the peace you've always wanted and the marriage and the kids and the job and the life and on and on and on. And we wonder why at the slightest difficulty, Christians cry out, we're being persecuted. We wonder why they complain about meeting times and programs and bounce from church to church. We wonder why they flounder in sin and hold tighter to their pornographic TV shows and their sports than they do to Jesus. The church has tried to bait and switch people for far too long, but Jesus does not play those games. These crowds are saying they want to follow Jesus. And they've even started down the road a bit. But he's telling them up front, you better be sure. Because it's going to cost you not just something. It's going to cost you everything. He then makes two real life allusions that anyone could relate to. It would be absurd for someone to just start building a house without trying to see first how much it costs. What kind of king would march into war overmatched two to one without first trying to make peace? Well, the answer is only fools. Only fools would do those things. And only a fool would try to follow Jesus without counting the cost. He's calling people to be very sure, be very deliberate in weighing out whether or not they want to follow him. Now, admittedly, it is a deliberate cost counting that Jesus is calling these people and us to. But we should know that we are always counting the cost. Every minute of every day we are counting the cost, maybe not intentionally, But in the background, in our minds and in our hearts, we're always counting the cost and choosing what we think will provide the greatest reward. Carl Jung, the well-known psychologist, developed a whole framework around this reality, eventually resulting in what we've all heard of as the Myers-Briggs. He theorized that we are always taking in information. We are always evaluating information. And we're making decisions based on our personal preferences. And that's happening in a far more subtle way. And that's counting the cost in its own way. And we do it all day, every day. You and I are always taking in information. We're always evaluating our surroundings. And we're always trying to see what's got the best payoff. And whatever we think has the best payoff, that's the thing we choose. We give ourselves to what we think will satisfy us the most. So Jesus isn't asking people to do something they don't do already. He's just asking you to be more reflective. Be more intentional. Be more serious about counting the cost. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says that he must constantly ask the Spirit of God to point out the things that he is loving more than Jesus. He says that when he asks the Lord to do this, God places his finger on one of his heart idols, and Dr. Ferguson feels himself say, Ah, anything but that. Anything but that. And in that moment, he knows that 
is exactly the thing that he needs to give up to follow his Savior. It's that that he needs to count the cost and say, Jesus is more worth it than that. Now, some of you know this tension. Some of you go through this all the time, that feeling of anything but that, and you count the cost. You count Jesus as worthy to regularly pour your life out in your pursuit of Him. And I want to commend you for that. I'm so thankful and I'm so encouraged by your faithfulness to Jesus. You could go anywhere you like. There are over 100 churches in Mesquite alone. But you choose to stay here. You know that you will get Jesus week in and week out from this pulpit and at this table, and so you forsake all others. Now, if you're like us, it's not unusual where you have moments where you ask yourself, wouldn't it be nice to worship in the mornings? Wouldn't it be nice if we had our own building or our singles ministry? Wouldn't it be nice if we had a couple support groups and maybe some counseling centers? Wouldn't it be nice to have great missions and outreaches? Nice to have someone else try to carry the load so that you could actually rest once in a while and maybe go to Sunday school or be involved in the discussion at MC or sit through a whole worship service. The questions, they go on and on and they surface and they surface and they surface, but you count the cost. You show up at 345 to help set up and serve. You're at Sunday school at 4 p.m. sharp. 405. <laughs> Every Sunday to grow in your knowledge of the Savior together. You endure language barriers and not sitting next to your spouse and even drinking grape juice at communion. You stay up later than you like and you wake up earlier than feels good so that you can be at MC and live life in the communion of saints with God's people. You seek out wisdom and counsel from your pastors on how you and your family can get more Jesus. You endure shame when you tell people that your church is hanging by a thread. Your family thinks you're crazy and you think this Jesus stuff is too serious. And it all really, really, really actually hurts. But you count the cost. You consider the furrowed brow of your earthly fathers worth the smiling face of your heavenly one. You count the cost and you find Jesus' invitation to come to Him without money and buy is worth every penny. But sometimes you wonder, what kind of cruel madman makes these requirements for His disciples? Are these bags under my eyes? Is this weight pulling on my soul worth it? Do I really have to give up everything? He better not just be a good moral example. He better not just be some wise teacher. It's not worth the pain if he's just your good friend in a time of need or a shoulder to cry on so that you can feel better when you're sad. 
But if He's the King of kings, if He's the Lord of lords, if He is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh to save you from your sins, if He's the Alpha, if He's the Omega, if He's the first, if He's the last, if He's the one who was and is and is to come, if He's all of these things, if He is who He said He is, and He keeps the promises that He makes, then He's worth your life. He's worth your soul. He's worth your all. If you don't believe this about Him, you will be unable to finish the race. You will be unable to be His disciple. If you think you die for Jesus, but you won't even be inconvenienced or discomforted to follow Him, you're deceived. You're in danger. If you want to change the world for Christ... But you won't do some dishes? Something is drastically out of order. And you've got to repent. Or you'll face an army far worse than the army in Jesus' story today. But if you've never felt that tension, and if you want to, or you've felt that tension and you feel like you're hanging tight to your anything but that, and you want to let it go, take heart. Jesus is not asking you to do something He hasn't already done on your behalf. I repeat, Jesus is not asking you to do something He hasn't already done for you. In the garden, He was tempted to cry out to His Father, anything but that. He was tempted to turn away. But he counted the cost. His vow wasn't rash like Jephthah's vow in our scripture reading. He knew the price of faithfulness. He knew what it would take to save us from our sins. And he remained faithful to his father through the journey of the curse of death on that lynching tree. And he went into death and he came out again. Anyone who would stare death in the face and defeat it for you is worthy of you staring your life in the face and following Him through it. If you've been raised in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Count the cost. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will be with Him in glory. Then you will know by sight what you believe to be true now by faith, and you will know that counting the cost was so very worth it. Pray with me, please. Lord of the cloud and fire, we confess that even as we follow you, we are often prone to wander. Our hand is holding a pilgrim's staff, and our march is Zionward. Our eyes are toward the coming of the Lord 
and our heart is in your hands without reserve. You have created it, redeemed it, renewed it, captured it and conquered it. Keep from our hearts every opposing foe. Crush in us every treacherous passion. Annihilate every earth-born desire. Let all faculties of our being be sensitive to your touch. We love you with soul, mind, body, strength, and might, spirit, affection, will, desire, intellect, and understanding. You are the very perfection of all perfections. All knowledge is derived from you. Our little streams flow from your unfathomable fountain. Compared with you, the sun is darkness. All beauty, deformity. All wisdom, folly. And the best goodness, faulty. You are worthy of an adoration greater than our dull hearts can yield. Invigorate our love that it may rise worthily to you. Tightly entwine its cords around you. Then shall our walk be endless praise. Amen.